Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with his former teammate and head coach of the Arizona State Sun Devils, Willie Bloomquist. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with an old teammate. Played 15 years in the big leagues. He's now the head coach of the Arizona State Sun Devils. And he's one of my favorite dudes. Willie Bloomquist, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on. I'm honored to be on the Boone Podcast. I'm uh, one of my favorite teammates of all time. So this is a, this is a treat for me. What kind of teammate was Boone? Let's get it right out there. <laughs> Let's get it out in the open. Uh, Booney was, uh, I was honored, and, and I'm not saying this because you're here, but, but it was, I was blessed to come into a, an organization with a bunch of older guys that knew how to play the game the right way and that taught me the right way how to play the game. Um, I can't count how many times post-game that you and I would sit uh, in your locker. I would be as Boone's guest, if you will in your locker with a vodka soda and, and talk about the game and learn about the game. And those things, um, you know, really uh, set the foundation for my career on, on how to go about your business the right way. All right, I'm going to set this up for you. The day we met, okay, so Willie, let me set the scene. Willie's a, he's a rookie. Uh, it's my first year back in Seattle. Now, the previous year I played for the San Diego Padres, I'd hurt my knee. I missed the last six weeks of the season. And the doctors were having a tough time diagnosing it. They didn't know what it was. They told me it was jumper's knee. They told me to rest it. It would get better. I get to spring training. I sign this contract kind of under duress, like they don't know something's wrong with my knee. I go to camp, and my knee's bothering me. And uh, I'll tell you what, I, I didn't know what to tell any. All right, you take it from there. You take the story from there, what the advice was to watch me at second base. Because, Willie, you came up as a second baseman, shortstop, third base. You ended up playing everywhere during your career. Well, I had a, you know, I had it my, when I signed at Arizona State, I had it in my deal that I was going to go to big league camp, you know, for the experience. And, you know, going into it, it was the coaches I had are like just be open-minded, learn, watch from the veteran guys that are there. And uh, in particular, they're like, hey, Brett Boone is there. Watch and absorb everything he does. Watch how he goes about his business. Watch how he takes ground balls on a daily basis <laughs> and, and just try to mimic everything he does. And I remember after the first two or three days, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? He sucks. Um, he can't feel the ground ball. Like, he, he can't go to his right. He doesn't have a backhand. I'm like, I'm better than this clown. I should be in the big leagues. <laughs> And um, that's kind of how I thought it. And I remember my, one of my coaches was like, hey, what would you think of Booney? And I'm like, honestly, I don't think he's very good. I think I have way more range than he does, and I'm a better player. <laughs> and um, anyway, come to find out years later that obviously Booney had a knee issue going on and, and, and shut me right up pretty quick that I'm like, yeah, sit in your seat, son. You still got a lot to learn. So, um, but at the time, the first week or so, I'm like, gosh, this guy's not very good. It gave me hope that I could be a big leaguer one day. No, but it was scary for me because nobody had known that I had a knee issue except for me. And the, I kind of told the trainer, hey, I, I'm, I'm a little gimpy. I end up going in. It was like the second or third day. And balls are going through my legs because I couldn't bend over. And exactly. I go in, and we got on a pretty aggressive uh, rehab 
uh, program, and I ended up, you know, remember Kinesio and Iggy's son? Iggy came over with uh, Ichiro from Japan. That was Ichiro's first year, and, and Iggy's son was his personal masseuse slash foot guy for me, but he gave me this, and I think you'll see it. People listen to the Boom Podcast right now. Nowadays, it's pretty normal to see volleyball players, Olympic athletes, sprinters, they have that tape. Uh, you know, sometimes it's green, orange. It's called kinesio tape. And I can't believe I don't have a, some sort of stake in kinesio because I think I was the first kinesio guy ever brought over by Ichiro's personal guy, Iggy. You should be getting royalties as far I, I, as I'm, I'm telling you. Because you put it on the map. Um, and I remember watching like, what? This dude's taping up both knees every day just to go play. It's but, like miracle tape. Yeah, it, it's flexible, and it, it allows you to, to move around still and doesn't lock you down, but it, it, stuff works. It's good. Yeah. I remember Willie as a young player, and it, like you said, we all, we all come to the big leagues at different times. The guy for me was, was Jay Buhner, who really kind of took me under his wing, and he kind of taught me, you know, talk when, speak when you're spoken to. Oh, I, I wasn't very good at that. But I kind of, I remember having talks with you. You were in my locker to my, to my right or my left. To well, we'd left. have talks. Let's talk about McLaren. <laughs> first of all, Lou Pinella is, is Willie's first skipper. Unbelievable. But there was a gentleman by the name of uh, John McLaren, who's, who's been on the Boom podcast, actually. He was our bench coach. He was Lou's bench coach for a lot of years. And he would come out into the locker room, and, and I'd say, hey, Mac, young Bloomquist, what's he got? When's the next time he's playing? And what would Mac say? Mac say, well, Booney, let, let, me, uh, let me get back to you. Come back about 10 minutes later. He goes, because he wouldn't talk to Willie. He wouldn't talk to you to your face. <laughs> he would talk through me. So we go, Boone, if you got a minute, tell Bloomquist, maybe be ready on Thursday. And you'd look at me and go, Booney, that means I'm playing Thursday. I said, it's a pretty good idea. You're going to be playing. Well, and then he, he would, he would tell, tell you to tell me that I might be playing Thursday, but then he would get ADD off to the side and go focus on his golf swing as he was you know, trying to talk to you. He's like, okay, that's all I got, Boone. I hit a par three the other day, 195 yards out, took a nice swing. Tell Bloomberg he might be playing on Thursday. But I remember, and you would take it so serious, but I remember because we all did. Back in the day when we were first coming up, man, you tell me I'm playing, and I'd come on Thursday, and, and there's Willie sitting in his, he's got his full uni on. Boom, I'm ready to go. But it's cool, and that's what we all go through uh, when we come to the big leagues. It's, it's such a big step. Everybody talks about that. What's the biggest step? Is it A ball to double A? Is it double A to triple? No, it's the big leagues. You get to the big leagues, it's a different world. Because now that great player in double A on the other team that you say, man, that guy's good. Well, there's nine of those on every, even on the worst big league teams. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole nother level. And, and I think when you, you know, for me, when I stopped getting that excitement of being in the lineup and playing, that's when I knew I was done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that was year, my last year in Seattle. Um, you know, I would almost come around, look, peer around the corner and check the lineup. And almost at times, my body was kind of shot at that point, almost kind of wished I wasn't in the lineup. I'm like, OK, this is about the end of the rope for me. But, um, you know, for me, that's the joy of playing in the big leagues. It's a whole nother level. It's a whole you're under the microscope with every move and, and there's pressure on every play. And, and some guys can handle it. And some guys can't. 
Lou Pinello, first skipper. How was it for you? I, I know how it was for me. It was different for me than it was for you, but what'd you think of Lou? You got a Lou story for me? Everybody's got a Lou story. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, Lou was very influential on, on so many levels. Uh, as a young guy, scared to death of him. You heard all the stories that he hates rookies, he hates rookie mistakes. Um, but all you can do is, is be honest, you know, when you screw up and wear it, he's going to chew your ass, he's going to get into you. Um, but he wants to see how you're going to respond. So uh, for me, he had a, that first spring training I had, he had a, there was a play where, you know, I'd been taught as a second baseman to drop down. If a guy was sliding into you, drop down and try and put it in his mouth. And um, I did that one game, and, and I thought I was going to get chewed, you know, to the nine by Lou because the ball ricocheted down the right field line. And he came over and threw a couple of expletives at me as to what happened. And I said, I dropped down, and I tried to put it in his mouth. And he grabbed me by the jersey and said, I don't give a shit. If we lose every game, that's how you play the game. Yeah. And he goes, you play it right. I have no problems with you, basically. And to me, it's, it's all the guys that were around at that point, yourself, Jay Buhner, uh, A-Rod, you know, uh, Edgar, those guys kind of looked and said, if you do it right, he doesn't have a problem with you, even if you make a mistake. So uh, when I retired, I actually called Lou and told him how influential he was in my career based on that conversation and just doing it right and um lou has a soft side to him too he actually choked up on the phone and and said damn bloomberg he still doesn't know my name damn bloomberg you made me cry that's pretty special so uh lou Pinella, i loved every bit of him uh, i wish i got to play for him for more than a month people people don't know but what lou was was if he respected you as a player and he respected you as a man He'd, he'd run through a wall for you. And if he didn't, your life could be your life could be hell on earth. But that was Lou. And you could either play for him. You were either a Lou type guy. That's why when he left and he went to Tampa Bay, I just said it was a young team at the time. They were the devil race. And I go, I wouldn't want to be on that team right now because Lou, Lou doesn't know how to handle. He told me in 2001 when we won all those games, I had come up with Lou in 92 or 93. He came over from the Reds. And he's just this, you know, high, strong, everything's this and that. And he's Lou. So I remember in 2001, we went 116 games in the, in the uh, reporters come up to me. And they go, hey, Booney, he's really, Lou's seemed to really mellow out in his old age. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's mellowed out. He wins every freaking night. If he can't mellow out, you know, I don't know when he can. But, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a special, special guy. Um, Another thing I remember about you as a kid, it's your first year, you were the king of the ice tubs. Nobody else takes ice tubs when they're like 23 years old, but Bloomquist would be in the ice tub every night. Did you ever think that first year you're in the big leagues, you don't know whether you're coming or going, like the rest of us, you're in that ice tub all the time. I'm like, for such a young lad, why don't you just put an ice pack? Boom, just take the ice tub. It just makes everything feel better. Do you ever think you're going to play 15 years in the big leagues at that point? No clue. Uh, I had no, no, um, no intention of you just survival, you know, and, and my role and my, my job was obviously not to play every day, especially early in my career, which was tough. Um, so I was just in survival mode. And, you know, again, guys that, that I respected and looked up to were like, dude, just toe the line every day. Be ready to play every day, no matter what. Just say, yes, sir. And, and do whatever is asked of you. Don't complain. Don't bitch about it. Just go play as hard as you can, whatever they ask you to do. And 
So for me, it was uh, it was a long career of just surviving on a daily basis. Um, but looking back, I wouldn't have had it any other way uh, because I feel like it made me appreciate every day that I was there. It made me appreciate uh, wearing the uniform and nothing was given to me. I had to earn it every single day. Otherwise, I was going to be gone. So um, I'll say this, you know, there were days I was downright awful. Uh, there were some days that I was okay. But at the end of the day, I, I, I realized that Every day you get to put a uniform on for a living, it's pretty damn special. And, um, you know, there, there wasn't a day I was taken for granted ever just because I knew if I did, I was going to be gone the next day. So um, to me, I think in the long run, it made me a better person and a better player. I think, I think this game uh, is such a tough game. It's, it's a tough game when you know you're in the lineup every day. And then I, I, I would put myself in your shoes, and I'm like, think of how tough his job is. Not only do you not know if you're playing tomorrow or the next day, unless McLaren comes around and, and decides to throw you a bone, but you don't know if you're playing short. You don't know if you're playing center. You might be at third. You might be at second. What's that, what's that like? What was the, what, what's the key, key for you? What early things in your career did you go this is what's getting me through this is what I learned this is how I succeed as you got to be an older player what did you tell younger players who did you did you were you a guy that would mentor the young guys um well I, I would mentor them knowing they were probably going to take my job uh, as an everyday starter which is you know that that's part of I think uh being a good teammate and being being a guy that that is willing to do whatever it takes to win for your team um you know for me it was that was the hard part is not knowing where I was going to play and not being able to prepare one day, you know, to the next at one particular position. I had to be sharp at all seven uh, minus pitcher and catcher, which was which was a blessing. But um, I always thought if I could stay sharp at shortstop and center field, then I would always be always have a job, you know, at some point, because if you can play those two positions, everything else should be, um, you know, toughest position on the infield, toughest position in the outfield the rest should be okay. And so uh, I continued, you know, have to put my work in at all, all six or seven of them. But, um, you know, it, it taught me a lot really to think along with a manager too on, on when a guy might need a day off. And so I would go work in that particular position, uh, you know, thinking that maybe I would get a day, that guy might get a breather and I'd have to go in and plug in for him. But, um, you know, the end of the day, it was, uh, it was tough. But, but um, you know, I was able to mentor guys coming up that, you know, you always – if shortstop is in your bag of tricks, you got to stay sharp there. Because if you can stay sharp at shortstop, you can always have a always have a way of hopefully finding a position at some point. We'll get to this a little bit later in the show. You're currently the head coach of uh, Arizona State Sun Devils, where you went to school, and um, your junior year, you were Pac-10 Player of the Year. Your third round pick, I believe, it was '99. '99. Pac-10 Player of the Year. Uh, with Seattle from 2002 to 2008. Then you went to the Royals for a couple years. Uh, you spent a, a little time with Dusty in the Reds. Uh, you moved over to Arizona where you had two years, you hit 300. You hit 302 and you hit 317. But a big thing I remember when, when, when guys asked me about a Willie Bloomquist type player and, and how, because you probably didn't know this, but a lot of the times when that first, when you were first getting your, there were a lot of meetings where there had to be moves that were made. And they said, who are we going to send out? Who, we, you know, we got to trade. We got to bring somebody in. And 
and because of your situation and the options you had, a lot of times Willie was a possibility to go down. And I can't tell you how many veteran guys in those rooms that were invited go, no, you can't send Willie Bloomquist down. And, uh, you know, I talk to you all the time about my son now who's, who's trying it as a pro, you know. He's, he's going to be 23 years old, and I look at him and I see a young Willie Bloomquist. I said, this kid can do a little bit of everything. He can steal a bag. Uh, he can give you a good A-B. He can play short. He can play center. And that's valuable because there's not too – you think of the guys that have kind of made it famous in, uh, with the Cubs in 2016, a Zobrist who's playing all over the place. We take those guys for granted. But the one thing I know, and to this day I tell people, I, I said, when Willie was – he didn't know whether he was coming or going. He didn't know if he was playing or he wasn't playing. Late in the game, tight situation. And I'm talking a time we need to steal a base. A lot of people can steal bases. I stole, you know, I stole 10. I stole 17 one year when I, I got a bunch of, you know, guys, the, the base dealers stealing third. I'm getting that backdoor bag at second base. But the real, and you know this, the real bases are stolen when the entire ballpark knows you're going. Pitcher knows, the catcher goes, everybody in that crowd knows you're going to steal a base, and you can steal it. You were put in a situation a lot of the times, and I always said, you know, not to mention any names, but we had base dealers on our team. I said, but if we need a big bag, I want Willie Bloomquist. And you might not have played for four days, but you had a knack for coming in the game, stealing that bag when it meant something. I can't even relate to that because you know me. They pay attention to me. I'm not going anywhere. I just didn't, I wasn't built that way. I didn't have that, uh, I didn't have that skill. You had it. What's the mindset? Willie Bloom, I'm going to set the table. Willie Bloomquist, it's Thursday. It's the last, you haven't played since Monday. It's a big game. Hey, Willie. Run for so and so at first, and by the way, you got to steal, and everybody knows you're going to steal. Put me. What's going through your mind right now? I took it as a challenge. Um, you know, I, I, one thing that never slumps is your legs, and at that that point in time, pre three knee surgeries, I could run a little bit. Um, I love that situation. I love the bottom of the ninth. Um, you know, down by one, you're on first. You got to get in scoring position for your guy to to drive you in. Um, I took it as the pressure is on them. They know I'm going, and I'm going to go. It's just a matter of which pitch I'm going to go on. It's going to be one of the first three pitches, and my ass is getting to second base, and I'm going to be safe. And for me, that was my mentality about it. Um, like, you're not going to throw me out. I will be safe, and I'm going to put the pressure on you because you're the one that knows I'm going to steal. And it's up to you. I, I knew mathematically from a... Um, how long it took me from my primary lead to slide into second and what my time was, I knew if a pitcher was any more than a 1.2 to the plate, I was going to be safe. And so the, the pressure is all on the pitcher and the catcher uh, to make a clean exchange, throw it right on top of the bag, and then you still got to tag me, which I'll take my chances. I know I'm going to be safe. So um, to me, that was the pressure was on the catcher to make a good throw. It was on the pitcher to be less than a 1.2 to the plate. And um, I just, I had it down to a, I don't want to say a science, but I had it to the point where I trusted my abilities that I was going to get a good read and a good jump. And like, hey, man, we ain't going to win this game unless they get to second base. So um, for me, it was my job to get my ass to second base and, and figure out a way to get there. So I was going. I got in the game. I was and going. And that's funny to me. You say one, two. For the, those of you listening out there, the Boone podcast, one, two, by the way, for a guy like Brett Boone, one, two is the no-go time. 
It's got to be late one threes. It gets over a one four. I'm stealing every single time, but a one two. My first base coach, I'd get, I'd say, give me the time. He'd say, one, two, seven. He'd look at me that, and give me the cutoff sign. Like, no, this is not when you go. So one, two is funny to me because I couldn't go into one, twos. You know, one, twos, it's like I got to get to a one, four. I feel really comfortable. But a one, three, seven, I'll probably get this bag. But, you know, that's, that's the difference in non-base stealer. Stealer, but it, it seems like I talk to a lot. The Vince Coleman's of the world, Ricky Henderson's, they, you all had that knack for and that attitude you have, like, I'm taking this bag. Whereas the player that doesn't have that gift, we ain't taking the bag. <laughs> We're scared. <laughs> it's not in our skill set. But uh, anyway, that, that was always interesting me to me. And I always, I always was impressed with how you went about it and how you handled those situations. Um, 2010, we had him on the, on the podcast recently, Dusty Baker. You got to play for a little bit in Cincinnati. Um, do you enjoy him? It seems like, uh, seems like all the fanfare is, is true, what they say about Dusty. Um, and I'll tell you, for years and years, I played against Dusty when he, was, when he was the Giants manager, when he was the Reds manager. I'd always walk by him, and I always say hello, but I never had a conversation with him, and I felt like I've known him for 100 years. And when I sat down with him recently and talked he reiterated all the feelings I had. Like, he is really a good guy. You got to play for him. Touch a little bit and him winning that World Series last year. Dusty is uh, a tremendous human. I only got a chance to play with him for, for under him for three weeks. Um, but in those three weeks, I learned why guys run through a wall for him. Uh, just, he is, um, he, he told me, and I can't really share what, what happened uh, from a, a personal standpoint, we had a, a crazy person that was after my family, but, but Dusty basically, you know, what he told me was, I don't care if you play for me for three days or 30 years, you're one of my boys and I'll, I'll look after you and do whatever I have to do to protect you. Um, in so many words. And to me, that was like, wow, that's why guys, uh, relate to him. That's why they play hard for him because he, genuinely cares about his players whether or not they're there for one day or, or for 10 years for him and um I, I i was a late trade i was given basically to the reds at that point in time and he could have blown me off as, as just some nobody but um you know when i told him what was going on with this stalker situation that i had um at home he's like hey man whatever you need you just let me know and um you know, let me know that he does. He doesn't care if I played for him. Like I said, for three weeks, I'm one of his boys, and he'll always have my back. So, uh, Dusty Baker, I, I would do anything for that man. He's a tremendous individual. Mentioned earlier, 2011 to 13, Arizona. You come back to Seattle, where it all started for you in 14 and 15. Um, for me, the, the end was a, a little bit. It was different. You know, I retired, then I am retired, then I came back, then I retired again. And, and the second time, I, I had felt good about it. You know, I had no loose ends. I had no regrets. When you get to the end, it's different for all of us. You know, some guys have an easy time just walking off in the sunset. Uh, I didn't. I thought I was going to. I went home. I had to sort some things out. You know, I, I, I just thought, wow, all of a sudden, my whole life, all I, all I am is a baseball player. And that's what my persona was wrapped up in. But now who am I? I? I don't have this uniform anymore that I took for granted my entire career. Um, and it took some time for me. After the 2015, you walk away. 
how did you know it was time? And you did one of the most, well, one of the first. You retired on Twitter. I want to hear about that story and how did you know it was time? Well, I, I knew um, in 2014, I, I got a, the year before I, I got released, um, I blew my knee out, you know, running out of ball down to first. And they basically told me at that point in time, I wasn't going to, my odds of playing again were very slim. And if I did, it would probably be by the all-star break the next year. Well, that's all I needed to hear. Um, I said, I'll be back ready for spring training opening day. Don't worry. Um, and I did. I was back ready for first day of spring training. And, and I was actually running probably a step faster than I was the year before just because of the amount of uh, effort and, and time that I put into the rehab assignment. But um, anyway, I got to 15 and, and um, I wasn't playing a lot, you know, shockingly. I had 30 at bats going into like June and I'm like, man, this is miserable. I'm not playing at all. Uh, last year I played a lot. This year I'm not playing at all a lot. Uh, playing it all, and, and so I, I started working out heavily. I'm like, ah, screw it. I'll just, I'll just work out after the games. And I remember I was taking uh, infield, outfield, out of, in right field because I thought I might play there in a couple days. And I uncorked one, and I felt my elbow blow, and I felt the, the flexor tendon pop. And um, I'm like, ah, oh, crap. Well, if I say something, nobody's gonna sign me next year. And if I don't say anything, then I'm going to struggle. But the amount I'm playing right now, I think I can get through this thing and then get something fixed in the off season. And um, go figure. About two days later, I'm playing shortstop <laughs> in Houston with Jose Altuve uh, leading off, and Felix was on the mound, and he hits a, a ground ball to shortstop, and I couldn't get across the infield. And Felix ended up giving an eight spot in the first. Well, it was all Bloomberg's fault. <laughs> and that, uh, that we gave up an eight spot in the first because I, I couldn't get the ball across the infield. And I knew it was coming. Uh, you know, they released me about a, a week later. And I was honestly happy to go home uh, just because my body was shot. I knew I was done. Mentally, I was kind of fried um, because I wasn't, I wasn't the talented guy. I had to come in and I had to be mentally sharp every single day in order to compete with the best in the world. I wasn't the, the talented guy. I had to be mentally better. And I just was mentally tired. And so when they sent me home, I, I thought they, they thought I was going to flip over a desk and be pissed off. And I remember telling Jack Sarandis, I dude, don't be sad, man. Be happy. I'm, I'm going to cartwheel on out of here and go home and be with my family. Um, and there was a little bit of a when I got home, I remember going into spring training the next year going, wow, this is different. I'm not, what's my purpose? And I, I kind of wanted to play, but the only reason I wanted to is because they told me I couldn't. And I didn't want to play for me. I wanted to play to, to piss them off that I still could do it. But at the end of the day, I knew I was going to have to have a lot of anti-inflammatories go through my system to be at that point. And and it wasn't worth it. So kind of to, to your next point, I decided to retire. Um, I remember calling my agent and said, quit making calls. I don't want to play anymore. And I said, what, what happens now? And he says, well, you, you uh, was talking to Mike Fiore and Mike said, well, we'll put something out on, you know, on, on the, on the wire here in a couple days. And I'm like, well, screw that. I should get to be able to announce when I retire, not you. And so I decided to go down to my alma mater and and I wasn't going to leave until I in my mind took the perfect swing and I finally after several rounds of BP took my perfect swing in my mind and 
flipped my bat, took my gloves off, and said, I'm done. That's it. I'll never take another competitive swing as long as I live. So uh, for me, that was, the, that was a good ending and a good way to go out. And uh, I, I look back, I have zero regrets. Very cool. Great career. Um, a lot of guys, you know, I mentioned I'm being one of them. You know, I walked away, and I, I kind of walked away aimlessly. It's like I played second base my whole life. Played baseball my whole life. That's all I knew. And I thought I'm going to go off in the sunset. I'm going to go. I'm going to go play golf. I'm going to go on vacation. And and after a while, you look around and go, well, how many vacations can I go on? How much golf can I play? And you kind of start questioning yourself. For you, you jumped right back, right in. Uh, special assistant with Derek Hall and the Diamondbacks. Uh, was that something at the end of your career when you're starting to look in the mirror, going? Am I going to transfer to something after this? Did you, did you kind of premeditate that? I know a lot of guys do. A lot of guys at the end of their career, they start networking. They start setting up. What are they going to do when they're done? Was that for you, or did that, you kind of just fall into that? I know you played for Arizona for three years. Well, I think it was something that, that um, at the end of your career, I remember <clears throat> I actually talked to your brother about this. Um, and your brother told me when he, w- he was my neighbor up in Pine Canyon, uh, you know, he told me, he's like, if you want to stay in the game, don't get out of it for too long because it's really tough to get back in. And so when I when Derek said, "Hey, if you want to, you know, you want to be a special assistant for the D-backs, um, would love to have you." And for me, I didn't want to do anything with baseball. I was burnt out. I was sick of it. I was tired of it. I didn't want to do anything on the field. But I remember your brother saying. Stay in the game if it's you want. Smart. It's smart. If you want to stay in the game, stay in it, even at a minimal capacity, because they forget who you are real quick. And so when Derek offered me the job with the D-backs, I'm like, yeah, I, I can be a front, as long as I don't have to do a whole lot, you know, at the beginning, because I was absolutely burnt to the crisp on baseball. And he was gracious enough to say, yeah, come and go as you please. You know, this is uh, your big part of the Diamondbacks culture and what we're doing. And help out in spring training, do what you want to do during the season. And to me, that was the perfect gig. I could be home at night with my kids um, and that part of, of everything and and kind of recharge the batteries, so to speak, until, um, until the, the next gig came up, which uh, was something I couldn't turn down. Currently, the, the, the head coach, of the, and I, I laugh, head coach. Hey, coach. Hey, coach. You know, because we go our, our pro career – you don't call a pro coach, but in college, that's what it is, the head coach. And, and it actually pisses us off when, when anybody calls a pro head coach. But in college, that's what it is. Um, it led you into that. You're going back to, like you mentioned, your alma mater. How did that, how did that come about? Who made that phone call? How did that, the Arizona State job come into play for you? Well, for me, it was... Um you know, it was something I, I obviously I feel passionate about ASU, and, and I got asked several times if I wanted to manage in pro ball, and, and to me, I'm like, no. Why would I want to do that? I don't want to be away from my family anymore. I don't want to. I don't want to go through that grind. I've, I've had a great career in the big leagues. I don't need to experience that anymore. Um, you know, and, and quite frankly, I didn't really care to to be around baseball on the field anymore. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I was obviously a big supporter of Arizona State. That's my alma mater. I'd go back, watch games. I would be, um, be around. They'd have me come and speak to the guys once in a while. Um, you know, and at the time, I was really, you know, supportive of the current staff that was there. They were getting a lot of shots fired at them because they weren't winning. And, and my job was to be supportive. 
Um, you know, and then as it kind of came down to the wire, I remember getting a phone call from, uh, from, from Graham Rossini, you know, our, one of our, who had left the Diamondbacks front office to go back to ASU. And it was probably two, you know, a week before the end of the season. He said, Hey man, you might want to buckle your seatbelt if you have any interest in, in, at Arizona state, you know, that this is starting to get real. Um, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, I'd never really thought about going back to college, but I got butterflies. I got excited. I'm like, wow, this is a chance to go back to a place that made me who I am. I'm passionate about ASU. I love the Arizona State program. Um, I always am pulling for them and hope they do well. And this is maybe my calling to go back and have an influence on on younger the younger generation. Um, and to me, I can't do anything. I can't be any good at anything if I'm not passionate about it. And for me, that was something that it, I'm passionate about. I love Arizona State. I, I, as you know, shit, I, I wear maroon and gold all the time. It's uh, something I'm, I love the place. I love the program, love the university. And when they asked me, hey, man, would you be serious about taking this over if we make a change? It was a no brainer. I'm like, heck yeah, man, I got to go back to my alma mater, have an influence and try to, to get this program back to the status that I remember Arizona State. So um, that's kind of how it came about. And, and shortly after, the, that current team didn't have a very good regional. They made a change, and, and they called me and said, hey, we're, we're ready to do this if you are. And I'm like, wow, this is happening really, really fast, but let's jump in and do this. So um, sometimes you gotta, you got to scare yourself a little bit and jump into the unknown. And to me, this is what I jumped into, and I love it. I'll tell you what, it's kind of a trend now what's going on with, with the college, uh, at the college level. For years and years, it wasn't, pro guys didn't go to college. And we had Chip Hale on the program. He, he's down at the U- University of Arizona. Eric Wedge is doing it at Wichita State. Stankiewicz just took over SC. Uh, Jose Gruz Jr. at Rice. So it's kind of becoming a thing where ex-big leaguers are taking over college programs. Um, you think we're gonna start seeing this happen more? They keep screwing with the big league game. I keep. I think more guys are going to say screw it and go back to the college where they can have an influence on guys because that's the whole reason you get into coaching. In my mind, is to be impactful, have a have an influence on on the younger generation. And and they keep. Um, you know, we can go into details of what if you want, but but they keep messing with the major league game that was it's freaking beautiful game. But why they keep screwing with it, I don't know. Um, and for me, it's like you start getting more and more entitled kids that come up that don't have to that don't have to have you as a mentor and, and Edgar as a mentor that are going to put your ass in your place if you step out of line. They don't have that anymore, um, so it doesn't make you earn your stripes as much. And you, what you're left with is a lot of entitled kids that think that the game owes them something. And I, I couldn't manage that. I really don't know how I would handle those type of players. So. For me, it's go back to the hopefully the, the purity of the game, back to college, um, deal with guys that you can have an influence on, um, you know, treat them the right way, and hopefully it be an impact on them from them moving forward in their career and teach them the right way to do things where they're actually going to listen to you and pay attention. Um, you know, you see Tulowitzki went back to Texas. You have uh, oh, Robin Ventura that. went back to Oklahoma State. You have all these guys that are like, you know, I, this is more of my calling, I think, then, you know, chalking another year up in the big leagues for me. Okay, what's that going to do? Go from 15 to 16 years. I would rather go back to college and have an influence on these guys to where I can hopefully give them the building blocks for their future 
um, and help them in their careers. So for me, I, I love where I'm at. I think it's a great spot, and I wouldn't go anywhere else. And it's cool because I think about it. Once you're a pro, you know, there's certain – when you're in the minor leagues, you're still a minor leaguer, but you're a pro, so you're expected to be treated like a man. You get to the big leagues, nobody tells you what to do. You sink or swim. You don't do your job, you get fired. And that's life. But the, the college level, and, I, and I'm interested to get into it with you about, there's so many nuances to it. It's the recruiting. It's not like when you were in college. The recruiting's different now. The money, the finances in, in the professional game have changed that. You know, First round picks don't go to college anymore. Second round picks don't go to college. Back in my day in 1990, when I signed, there were first round picks that didn't go to college. Or, or I'm sorry, that went to college because it wasn't such the drastic difference. Now, if you're a first-round pick, you're getting two, three, four, five million dollars, of course. And we'll throw in the college. We'll throw in the Stanford scholarship as well. So really, you can't compete with that as a college player. Different, back in, back in my day, there were full scholarships. Now, you don't deal with full scholarships anymore. Um, how is that? You step in... Played in the big leagues 15 years. Now, all of a sudden, you're a college coach. Willie, go recruit the best players in the country, but don't recruit players that are too good that we're going to lose in the draft. But at the same time, we need to have our ranking high, so we need that guy too. Go get him. Well, it's uh, you're jumping into – and Pat Murphy was one of my mentors that – you know, gave me advice coming into this job. He's like, look, you're taking on a giant. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I know. Uh, and, but you really don't realize it until you start doing it about how big of a giant it is um, and how much work it is really to jump on phone calls, you know, on, on the way home from work when you're, you've been on the field all day and now, you know, it's Miller time for everybody else, but you're on your way home and it's like the, the day is just starting. You got to you got to call little Johnny, who's a 15-year-old sophomore, you know, in Florida, and you got to kiss his ass and pretend him like he's the he's the next big thing that's going to come to this game, and you got to make him feel special, um, you know. But like you said, you can't you can't recruit the big-time blue chips because they're never going to make it on campus. But you kind of need them in order to boost your recruiting class rankings. There's just a lot of different. Um, a lot of different avenues, a lot of different variables that, that factor into it. But I think at the end of the day, in my mind, we, I kind of go back to today's generation. You, if you can recruit the right type of mentality, and of course you need talent because that goes without saying. If you're going to Arizona State, you better be talented. But you have to recruit the mentality along with it. And, you know, there's questions you ask, ask not only them, but their high school coaches, their, their travel ball coaches, people that know them, their guidance counselors. You do this in-depth criteria of these young men, and, and you find out, okay, is this our type of kid that's going to be able to withstand an ass-chewing once in a while? Is he going to be able to toe the line like we used to do, or is he going to cower and, and not going to be able to handle the pressure? Those are the type of players I believe you win with in the long run. Um, you know, I'll take the B-plus kid, you know, that has, has the right mentality over the A-plus kid with no mentality any day of the week. And so for me, that's kind of been my target, and we'll see if it's successful or not. I'm, we'll see. Um, but I'm after that B-plus kid that has a chip on his shoulder that, 
that has the right mentality that says, screw you, I'm going to kick your ass when I go against you because I've been slated a little bit against all these big-time blue-chip guys. So you give me those type of players, I think we can win with that. Get players that believe they're good. And, and even beyond their talent sometimes, their talent level. They think, I, I love those guys. He, he really thinks he's the shit. <laughs> and if he thinks he is, if he, I, I use this scenario all the time. It's like a lot of guys can talk a good game. But when you come out of the shower at the, at the Motel 6 and it's just you in that mirror, do you believe all that stuff you talk on the field? The guy that does, that's the guy I want because he's got a chance. Um, college level, win or develop or both? Well, I think it's, um, I, I've come into a situation to where, you know, they wouldn't have hired me if things were going great. Um, so I understand that that is a building process, but I believe you have to develop these kids. And if you develop the right type of kid, um, you know, and if you were to create a mission, if I were to create a mission statement for Arizona State, it, it's when our players leave here, they're going to be a positive influence on society whether it's in baseball or whatever professional field they choose, if that's our job to coach them and teach them the right way how to do things, we're going to win games and the wins are going to follow after that. If we teach them the right way, they're going to be winners on the field. Um, we have guys that obviously myself, Mike Goff, uh, Sam Peraza, guys that are developing players from a baseball standpoint, but I think our job is more important than that. It's teaching them right from wrong, continuing to hold them accountable for things off the field as well. Um, and if we can continue to do that, I think the culture will start breeding itself um, and the big time wins will come after that. But um, of course, we're in a bottom line business where we have to win. Uh, that's why I was hired, I guess, to, because they weren't up to the standards of Arizona State. So. You know, certainly I feel the pressures of winning, but that's, I think pressure is a privilege. You have to embrace it and the fact that people think you're good enough to win and, and we're expected to win at ASU. Um, but at the same time, you got to develop guys to, to be better baseball players. So um, it, it, it's kind of a mix to both, I guess, to answer your question. But for me, if we step outside the box and, and continue to improve these individuals on a an overall basis on, on what kind of human beings they are and continue to develop them that, the winds are going to follow. And, and what's not spoken to as much as it should be, I think. Uh, I, I had a, a son that went through college recently. He went to Princeton, and uh, an old teammate of mine, Scott Bradley, was a head coach. And I hear too many parents these days about what's he going to teach him. I said, you know what? You know what I want? I want him to be with a good man that's going to teach him to be a man. And the baseball's extra. So with a Willie Bloomquist, I know the man you are, but you also have that resume of being a big leaguer for 15 years. So that's not too bad on the side. But my first choice is, what kind of man am I passing him off to that's going to kind of be the dad away from his dad? And, and I don't think people think that off. That is the most important thing. Because you're playing at a Division One highly ranked university, Arizona State. A lot of guys go on and go to the big leagues from there, but a lot more than more, more don't. And what kind of men are they going to be? Like you said, what kind of men are they going to be in society when they get out of here? And if you take that stance as I'm going to make him a better human being, when he goes out in the world, he makes the world a better place. 
And then the baseball, to me, is just an extra. Here's a guy that I can lean on as a college player. Well, Willie did it for 15 years. He's been there, done that, seen every scenario. You can look at it from, a, you know, like we mentioned earlier, five or six different positions. I think you kind of, you're the ultimate guy that I would send my kid off to, if that makes sense. It's, uh, you know, not, that's the responsibility that I accept. And, and when I'm recruiting a, a, parent, a parent's son, um, you know, I just don't recruit the kid. I also recruit the family uh, because I want them, you know, I don't take that lightly. I'm a, I'm a father of four daughters to where I want, I would want my kid going to somewhere where, A, I'm going to be shot straight. I'm going to be, a lot of guys come into my office and they don't like what they hear, but it's the truth. Um, to me, that's the number one thing is I got to be truthful with these guys, whether they like it or not. But, but two is that I'm, I'm accepting the responsibility of, of the next four year, three or four years of your son. And I don't take that lightly. I got to be honest. I got to be upfront and I got to develop him and, and continue to hopefully uh, improve upon or what they've, they've already done and, and teaching him the right way, continuing to show him right from wrong. So if that means at times I got to discipline guys um, for doing stupid stuff, then I got to discipline them. And whether or not I like making the kid run with a pillow in one hand and an alarm clock in the other because he overslept, um, hey, that's just part of the gig, man. I'm, I'm trying to teach you that you can't be late for practice. That doesn't work here. Um, and if you continue to do that, you're going to pack your stuff and go home. There's responsibilities and consequences for your actions. So, um, you know, I, I take that. I take that to heart, I guess, when I'm continuing to hopefully improve him on the baseball field, but off the field as well and teaching him about life. Very cool. I want to go this way. Transfer portal. Give me a little education on the transfer portal, and then I want to talk about NIL. I would have made some money if we had NILs when I was playing. Boone would have made some money. I'm Bloomer. You, you definitely would have made <laughs> definitely would have made some money. Um, <laughs> You know, first the transfer portal, it's, it's a mess, um, but I'm thankful for it because we would, we'd be terrible again this year if we didn't have the transfer portal. So part of me is I'm thankful for it, but on the other hand, it, it's, it's out of control. Um, it, it, I think it teaches a lot of kids that if things get tough, I can just jump ship and go somewhere else. And is that really what we're teaching our youth uh, to where when things get tough, we, we just go somewhere else? Um, you know, no one asked my opinion on this except for you. Um, but and if that's asked, I'll give it to you. But I, I believe that, it, that a transfer portal should be, you know, if a school honors your scholarship, then if you're going to transfer when they are honoring your scholarship, then you have to sit out a year. If you are not on money and you're on a walk on spot and they don't put you on scholarship and you want to transfer, then you should be free to transfer without penalty. But at some point in time, if a, if a school is honoring what they said they were going to honor and you agreed to that, then we're allowing kids just to go ahead and jump ship because they chose the wrong school or they don't like the program. They didn't do their due diligence and what type of program they're getting into. We're teaching them to just run away from their problems. So I'm not a big, um, as much as I lived on the transfer portal last year and we'll probably do it again this year, um, I think the system needs to be changed a little bit from currently how it is. Um, that's just my two cents worth. But uh, getting into the NIL stuff, uh, I, I, have, um, I have a tough time with it because I, I feel like we're starting to dive into professional baseball in college. Um, I get it. The NCAA makes a ton of money off the student-athletes. 
And do I think they should get paid something? Absolutely. Um, but when you start unleveling the playing field with some schools being able to offer you know, millions of dollars to their rostered athletes versus other schools that just don't have it, are we really doing what's best for college baseball? Right now there is a parity across the board that is probably as high as it's ever been. There are schools that you never even heard of that are beating beating big-time programs. North Dakota State gave us a run for our money yesterday. Should have beat us, really. And who is North Dakota State? Well, they, they almost kicked our ass yesterday. So um, there is great parity across college baseball. You're going to destroy that when you start being able to throw in the kind of dollars that – that a lot of these schools are able to throw at their athletes because all the good players are going to go to one conference and that's going to be it. And it's going to be a super conference against everybody else. So um, I, I really caution college sports on what they're doing with the NIL. I, I, there is a place for it. I, yes, I think kids do need to get paid something, but on the same token, it's, it's got to be, it's gotta be uh, tampered expectations on, on just making it a free-for-all. When you mentioned the when you mentioned the transfer portal, I, I just think, man, does that give the kid a little too much leverage in that situation? Does he have a little too much? Like you said, he's got a full scholarship and he can just pick up, and there's no punishment for making a decision. So I'm with you on that. If you had to pick one thing, all the things we discussed, being a college coach, what is your biggest challenge? Biggest challenge is. Um well, I think, you know, when you take on this job, you're, like you said, the challenge between developing and winning. But I think um, the biggest challenge is not getting an ego to the point where you forget about people. Um, and I think a lot of college coaches across the country, and I won't mention any names, although I'd love to, uh, their egos have gotten so big to where they, they don't care about the player. And I think you can see where you could fall down that trap of, of worrying about yourself and your own self-image versus versus the student athlete and the young man that's come to play for you, and I think that's the biggest challenge. You know, for me is to continue to to try to build a program that that's hopefully competes for a national championship year in and year out, while at the same time keeping the the human interest of the young student athlete at the forefront. Um, and, and you can see it's easily to get sidetracked and, and make this about you as the head coach, but it's not. I came back to be the head coach at Arizona State because I care about the program and I want to give these young men that are coming here the best experience and a better experience than I had when I was here. And my three years here were phenomenal. So that's my job. That's why I came back here was to give them a great experience and teach them to play the right way and continue to teach them as, as young men and I think ultimately, though, you can see where that would be the biggest challenge is not making this about you, continuing to make it about the kids that come and play for you. Recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I went back to my alma mater. I went back to USC. It's changed a lot. The pro uh, facilities changed. Stankiewicz took over. He's excited about their future. I asked him, how are you going to be this year? I won't tell you what he said in case he's listening. But... Um, He's optimistic about the future for the University of Southern California. But facilities are getting better. They're nicer. Uh, Nike's bringing a lot of money into the game. Um, I look at, at the pro level, at the big league level, and, and this has kind of been a thing for me. 
with the organizations. I, I love the organizations that do a great job incorporating their past. I look, I walk, I go to a New York Yankee game, and, and he passed away recently, but at one time you could have Yogi Berra and Reggie Jackson and Derek Jeter, now Aaron Judge, and you could have three generations of family sitting in the, in the stands, and, and Grandpa could be telling stories about Yogi Berra, and the, and the father could be saying, you should have seen Reggie play, son, and the, and the young kid's going, well, Derek Jeter, he's better than Reggie, and, and they have, but that's what baseball is. You get that debate. I think it's so important. I don't think enough teams do it. Uh, my dad, because he's affiliated with the Phillies for so long, the Philadelphia Phillies do a hell of a job at incorporating that. At the college level, I saw Stankiewicz making a real big effort in this alumni game recently of bringing back the guys that made the program what it is. And by the way, they played like a real game where you had kids that are like in double A now coming back. I couldn't play, although Cirillo took an A-B. Did I tell you that? You Cirillo me. got an A-B. But it, no, I, I sat on the sidelines. But it was cool to see. I think that's important. How important is that for, for you at, at Arizona State? Well, I think it's, it's everything, really, especially when you have a history and tradition as deep as ASU, um, and as much as I hate to give them credit, but also USC. Um, the, 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 the traditions are deep, and the you know, the amount of major leaguers that have come from Arizona State is number one in the country with 116. We've had more players drafted in any player, any, any program in the country. And when you, when you look at the history of guys, when we had the first ever pick in the major league draft, you know, it, it, at Arizona State, actually the first two with, with Eddie Bain and Reggie Jackson, um, the history is why this place is special. And I think those that have forgotten that should be reminded that you know, the guys before you built this place, not you. Um, and I think long after we're gone, the play, players that were here before us and the players here after us make this place who, who it is and, and how special it is. So when you look at the names on the wall with, with Pedroyas and Alvin Davis and Bob Horner and those type of guys, Eddie Baines, um, you know, those guys are, are what this program is about. You know, Barry Bonds, Dustin Pedroya, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. So I think to incorporate the tradition and the history of this place is um, you're doing it a disservice if you forget about it. And for me, it's important for our young guys to understand that you're representing something greater than yourself. This isn't about you. This is about the program. And you're just carrying the torch for the next generation. So um, for me, that's, that's what I try to remind our guys that this program is bigger than you as an individual and it will always will be it's not about one person it's about the program so uh, if you forget that then pack your pack your bags and go home and, and go somewhere else but um, as long as I'm at Arizona State hopefully we uh, we continue to remember that the, the that the past and those guys built this place not us well, Willie, uh, Willie Bloomquist, it's been an honor, man. And, you know, you know this. Um, you're one of my favorite teammates all time, you know. And, and I'm, when I, I remember seeing you late in your career. And uh, you were like, I said, you still taking the ice tub bass? He goes, Booney, I'm still taking it. And that was 15 years later. And I remember how proud I was of, of not only the player you'd, you'd been, but the way you went about your, your business, the coach that you – have become and will be at Arizona State in, in forming these young kids' lives. Uh, I'm proud of you. I love you, and, and I appreciate you coming on. As we do 
after each and every Boone podcast. At the end of the podcast, as we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, that voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to wrap it up for the Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer, and voice of the Boone Podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone Podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends, and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.